At a rough estimate, planet Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, give or take the odd 50 million years. Anatomically, modern Homo sapiens, aka the human species that had the same brain setup as you, the person currently listening to this, evolved about 200,000 years ago. Human civilization only began about 6,000 years ago. As author Emma Dabry writes in her 2021 book, cheekily titled What White People Can Do Next, in the grand scheme of things, human beings are babies. A speck on the face of time and space. The thought puts into perspective how parts of society that seem entrenched from day dot are actually pretty new. You know, religion, gender, race. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. In the 21st century, the concept of race often feels fixed and immovable, in mainstream thought at least. We literally think in black and white. But ideas about race that see as established and scientific fact are only about 400 years old. And, quelle surprise, so is the transatlantic slave trade. My name is Subhadra Das. I am a writer and historian, and I specialize in the history of science, particularly the history of scientific racism and eugenics. Let's start with the basics. What do we mean by the term scientific racism? When do we see it emerging as a branch of science? A lot of the ideas that we have about race which I interpret as being able to judge things about people based on the way that they look, start to crystallize in the aftermath of the transatlantic slave trade, in the aftermath of slavery. And as that sort of capitalist extractive system sets into place, there are scientific ideas to do with people, who we are, what makes us human, and how we differ potentially from each other. That's when those ideas start to quantify. So, before there was the transatlantic slave trade and before Europe started to make huge amounts of money out of the free labour of enslaved African people, the notion that African people or people in general were somehow different from each other based on simple things like skin colour, hair colour, eye colour, those distinctions were notable, but they weren't acknowledged in kind of the same way. And I think what's so interesting about that is, of course, that there were people of African descent who were living in the UK, you know, all the way back to the Romans. But somehow our conceptualization of black people, of non-white people, as somehow being alien, as somehow being difficult, this is the time period in which we start to get those ideas. In the present day, it can be hard to grasp what we mean when we say race is a social construct. In Origin Stories Part 1, we heard how blackness had already attracted negative connotations via slave trading in the Middle Ages, but that it wasn't codified to any specific set of physical features. Blackness back then was attached to everyone that whiteness wasn't, from Jewish people to the Roma. Whiteness was similarly fluid. Groups we might think of now as white were not racialized like that for much of the past. I asked Subhadra to confirm if the old cliché is correct. 
that there's only one race, the human one. It is entirely correct. So meet any geneticist worth their salt will tell you that there is only the one race, the human race. But the time in which we started to think that maybe that wasn't the case is during this period of following the Enlightenment and coming into the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, when slavery is kind of the main mode of production. There's a huge amount of international profit coming from the work of enslaved African people. This is when people start to think, hmm, maybe there is something different and maybe we can tell those differences based on the way people look. What other ideas are rising in this Enlightenment period? In Series 1, Episode 2, The Tree of Life, we talked to historian Simon Schaffer about how science and Britain's race to be dominant in that field helped fuel slavery and colonial expansion. I listened, by the way, and Simon Schaffer has just endeared himself to me forever for that. That was such an education for me. And what was so refreshing was to be able to hear a historian of science make it so clear that scientific endeavour and colonialism, you know, they go hand in hand. They're so closely entwined as to basically be the same thing. So we're talking about the 16th and the 17th centuries. We've got philosophers, mostly French philosophers, who are coming up with the idea about human equality and the idea that people are inherently the same. And these anti-monarchist ideas, you know, they feed into things like the French Revolution. But at the same time, there is this hideous irony that a lot of the people that we associate with the Enlightenment, with ideas of human equality, all have ideas to do with race and the inferiority of non-white people, particularly the inferiority of African people. And that's kind of in part the world that they are seeing in front of them. Their experiences of African people are as enslaved people. They're equating different groups of people with different ways of being in society. And while they're propounding these ideas that everyone is somehow equal, they're not counting black people as everyone. Who was counted in that category of black people at the time? basically all non-white people, but I kind of, I need to be aware of my own positionality when talking about this as well. So your listeners may have guessed that I am of South Asian origin based on my name. And I grew up internationally. I am now a British citizen, but I'm well aware of the fact that South Asian people are like a, you know, we're like a model minority, particularly in Britain. So that is why I think it's important to point out that African people definitely bore the brunt of this scientific racism, this hierarchical view of seeing different groups of people. But Asian people, South Asian, East Asian, Native American people from across the continent and Indigenous Australian people, they were all viewed as kind of different groups. And this is why we can think about why the idea of scientific racism was never actually particularly valid, was because depending on which scientist you're talking about, they quantify the groups in different ways. So some people think that there are five races, some people think that there are three. They were never particularly consistent about how they were categorizing people. But white or Caucasian, which is the word that Friedrich Blumenbach comes up with to define Europeans ostensibly, or the, the people that he thinks are the most beautiful, they're always there at the top of this hierarchy. And black people, African people, are inevitably always at the bottom. But these things are very fluid and they're inconsistent in ways that are kind of hilarious, but also kind of horrific. Johann Friedrich Blumbach, who Sapadra mentioned, is considered to be the first person to use the terms white and Caucasian in reference to people of European ancestry. He was a German physician, naturalist, physiologist and anthropologist, now known for scientific racism. But back to my conversation with Sapadra, I wanted to know what was a good example to illustrate how this race science changed its categorization based on which scientist was doing the categorizing. 
So, like I said, my family are from South Asia. I am someone who was born into a caste. So technically, as far as some of these race scientists operating in Europe at the time were thinking, I would count as Caucasian because I'm light-skinned South Asian. My family is not Brahmin. We are more middle caste, but we have caste nonetheless. And so the main thing for people to take away is that this is a complete nonsense. The fact that race was kind of taxonomy, the ways of grouping people was definitely put forward as a as a scientific fact or a, a natural occurrence that was being observed rather than ways in which scientists who are socialized individuals are looking at the world. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. One of the points driven home by our series one episode looking at Isaac Newton, science and the slave trade was that scientific exploration was absolutely entwined with the goals of the British state. At this point in history, Britain wants further reason to enslave Africans. Is this, in essence, why race science emerged? Because the state wanted to rationalise its oppression of Africans via blackness? Or is it more complex than that? It's always going to be more complex than that because we can't ever really ascribe like an overarching mission because we're looking kind of back in time, right? And so if we think about things like the East India Company or the Royal Africa Company, are they setting up to come up with a worldwide system of oppression? No, they're trying to make money. And if it's the case that there are some scientific thinkers, so people who are biologists, people who are taxonomists looking at the natural world, if they come up with ideas that suggest that those people who are being enslaved, African people, are somehow biologically inferior to European people. That's an idea that's going to have general appeal to the state. And the way that that kind of becomes transformed later on is this idea of eugenics, which is the complete solidification of the idea of science in the state. Eugenics is the idea that by being fed scientific information, the state can make decisions about who does and doesn't get to have children. This is very much where I live in terms of the long history of the idea of race is that eugenics is scientific racism rebranded for the 20th century. So I can see what the question is. And the thing that I can tell you is that ideas to do with white supremacy, to do with European superiority of other people becomes codified and becomes an acceptable way of thinking including an acceptable scientific way of thinking at this point in time. So it's not as easy as retrospectively saying that it was all planned out. 
we end up sounding like conspiracy theorists when we say, you know, this was how these people were thinking and this was what they wanted to do. No, it's actually scarier and more insidious than that because ideas that appeal to us, they appeal because they have certain advantages or, you know, it kind of makes sense to say that enslaved people are somehow subhuman or somehow inferior because that justifies not treating them as human. I think that's a very important point to make about how these concepts make their way into our societies and remain there. How does this early development of race science proceed, especially alongside the transatlantic slave trade? Were there any scientific disciplines it really colonised? So, Professor Kahinde Andrews, who is the head of the Black Studies Department at Birmingham City University, once said something that has always stuck with me, which was that we call it scientific racism in the aftermath of the Second World War. Before that, they just called it science. And if you look at the whole host of the things that we now consider to be different individual scientific disciplines, so things like biology, archaeology, anthropology, we kind of make that hard science, soft science distinction between these two things. Nowadays, they all start out as basically the same question, which is, what does it mean to be human? How can we tell what a human organism is and how it behaves within the different environment? And of course, the scientists who were hopping aboard ships that were going all around the world as part of the Imperial Project and also contributing to the Imperial Project at the same time. So, you know, working out things like longitude, working out how to build clocks and compasses and ways of being able to like navigate the world. They are encountering not a world in a natural state, which is how they kind of saw it, but, you know, that they are affecting the world that they are in as they are going along. And so natural historians, which is what these people were called, and natural philosophers, so you know, trying to think about how different parts of the world react in different ways, they're all kind of asking the same question, what does it mean to be human? And when they encounter different people from different places, their impression of those people is based on an economic reality that they're encountering in that moment in time. So the things that they think that they are observing rationally, objectively, what they are actually observing is a sort of a political and an economic reality at the same time. Modern audiences, I know that your work has highlighted what we'd now call physiognomy and phrenology. What are those? How do they codify racial science? So physiognomy was a system of thought that codified pre-existing ancient Greek and medieval ways of understanding the human body. And it was a system called the four humours. The idea was that the human body is made up of these four different substances. They exist in a balance and you have to kind of keep them that way in order to ensure a person's health. It was a Swiss biologist, philosopher, difficult to describe him in retrospect. Racist is probably the easiest way to describe him. Johann Caspar Lavate, who codifies this physiognomic idea. And when he makes these connections between the different humours, which are blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm, and these words are still with us in our language. So if we talk about someone as being phlegmatic, for example, this is someone with an excess of phlegm, and they are demonstrating that that is part of their personality because of this substance in their body. But Lavate, at the same time, codified this according to race as well. Main aspect of it is to do with correlating physical appearance to intelligence. And so Lavate says things like, we could never imagine the ideas of a Newton or a da Vinci coming out of the head of an African person or an Eskimo, because they just are not built in the same way. So physiognomy is this really insidious idea of biological essentialism. And biological essentialism is the principle that's at the heart of understanding scientific conceptions of race, conceptions of eugenics, and actually contemporary conceptions of how race works as well. 
What about phrenology? That's the one I'd heard of before and possibly some of our listeners also. Phrenology is this idea that you can relate mental faculty, relating it to bodily features, particularly the head. So phrenologists are famous for, you know, measuring and looking at the lumps and bumps on people's heads in order to try to work out what their personality is. You know, if you've got like a bump at the ridge at the top of your nose, it means you're highly individualistic. I know it's really difficult to do it without immediately putting your hands on yourself, trying to work out where you fall into this category. It's nonsense, so don't worry about it. But things like, you know, you'd be a good parent because you've got a lot of amativeness because of how the bit of skull above your ear is shaped. And phrenology is almost immediately dismissed from a scientific principle as being just not consistent at all. But it becomes a very popular idea in the general public. Again, this idea that you can tell something about someone from the way that they look, particularly things to do with like criminality. Oh, that guy, you know, his eyes are a bit close together. You don't want to trust him. Or, you know, I don't know why it's always men, but like men with big foreheads or something like, you know, it's these kinds of really lazy ways of thinking. And then phrenology is dismissed scientifically as not being systematic or being consistent enough. And the reaction of some people to that, and these are the people who are the very famous scientific racists, they are anthropometricians. Anthropometry is the science of measuring human bodies. Particularly, they were interested in the skull. So you had people like Samuel Morton, who was a biologist who was based in Harvard, Paul Brocker, who's a French biologist. And they're just looking at skulls, measuring the different aspect size, the shape, in order to try to be able to work out the relative intelligence of different sorts of people. And Morton publishes huge volumes of these measurements of people's skulls. And his conclusion is that it's Europeans and white people that have the biggest skulls, so therefore they are the most intelligent. And he says that African people, as a rule, tend to have smaller skulls, and therefore they are the least intelligent. And these insidious incorrect ideas become more and more codified as we go along. This idea that we can ascribe intelligence, thinking, humanity to certain groups of people. Criminality, for example, is really embedded in Black people's bodies in our society today. This is why they are treated differently by the police, because they are seen as inherently, innately embodied violent threat, despite the fact there is nothing to say that Black people versus white people are going to be more criminal. The reason I knew anything about phrenology is because I read that race science had become popular in Britain as a middle-class parlour game. Instead of having dinner party and karaoke, middle-class women would have their heads measured for fun. Is that right? And what does that tell us about the separation between the way that race science was affecting people racialized as white with class power back in Britain versus enslaved Africans in slave colonies? There's a famous scene from Jane Eyre, which is a highly racialized book when you start thinking about it, because what you have is an imprisoned black woman in the attic. Uh, and, you know, her blackness and her madness are two things that are confounded completely. And basically, I'm so sorry that I've just ruined this book for everyone. But you do need to think about it and you need to think and read White Sargasso Sea as well. So there's a scene where Mr. Rochester pretends to be a so-called gypsy who comes to read people's skulls. There's the party of the fancy white women who've come, the rich white women, as opposed to just the poor white women. So they are having their skulls read and their fortunes told at the same time. And that kind of goes to show, you know, that, that it was seen in that sort of same way as something being of a frippery, a bit of a nonsense. I mean, there's a scene in, I think it's Woodlanders, which is the Thomas Hardy book, where, you know, the, the grandmother of the main character says, oh, I've promised my skull when I die to the fancy scientist who's come to live in the village. So it's, yeah, it's definitely permeating society and writers are confounding these ideas and they're they're confronting them to show really how ridiculous they are. So it is an idea that exists within society, obviously literate and well-read society. 
But again, the distinctions between class come into it as well. So to my mind, the working class people who are coming into the urban centres and working in factories, and there's increasing exploitation of those people as well. There's increasing poverty with those people. And when eugenics starts to take over from scientific racism toward the turn of the 19th and into the 20th century, that is the concern of eugenicists, people like Francis Galton, who's the guy that comes up with the term. You know, there's this growing class of urban poor who are increasingly criminal, who are increasingly degenerate. You know, they're degrading the quality of the race. These are the people that need to be controlled. And so race and class are definitely those connected ideas. And in a way, the ways in which people racialized as black in the colonies, people are classed as working class in the British Isles. So it's the same kind of process. And this is why solidarity is so important, because there's really, when it, class and race are basically the same thing. Race is what happens to people in the colonies. Class is what happens to them in the British Isles. This has also reminded me that pseudo-conceptions of race have historically meant more than someone's skin colour, which is how I think most people think of it in the present. I think our conception of race as being purely to do with skin colour is kind of a, a side effect of the ways in which things are thought about as a kind of a result of the slave trade and, you know, the one drop rule. So this idea that lighter skinned people are somehow different. They have greater political agency to be able to argue for their own freedom, for example. So skin colour is one, but not one of the main ways in which the distinctions are made between people. Skull shape, as I say, was probably the most popular way of trying to be able to quantify those differences. But things like eye colour and hair colour and texture particularly are also like really more complicated aspects of the embodied ways in which people are racialized, And that's why it becomes so much more complicated. Probably one of the best examples is if we think about people living in Nazi Germany. You know, there were stories of Nazi soldiers who take Jewish children away from their parents and are confused as to why they are having to do it because the children that they are kidnapping have got blue eyes and blonde hair. They're confused as to why those children are being taken away. At the same time, there were plenty of German non-Jewish people who had brown curly hair that felt the need to escape Germany at this point in time because they could see the ways in which racial identity was being confused and confounded in these ways. So the thing about race is that it has never been consistent. It has never been consistently applied. People's physical appearance always kind of manages to slip through the gaps in some ways. But it's the simple idea that we can tell everything we need to know about people in groups as opposed to in individuals. That is what makes race such an insidious idea. How do we see race science enacted on plantations? Would overseers be measuring the enslaved humans they were buying, for example? No, I think the people doing the measuring were very much the scientists. So they are the people in the universities, they're in their ivory towers, they are carrying out these investigations kind of in and of themselves. Their ideas are trickling out of the academy and kind of into the general populace in sort of ways of thinking. In terms of the ways in which slavery was actually enacted, that's a very practical process. So in its beginnings, it is people who are kidnapped from Africa and brought across. And then it is sexual violence enacted on enslaved African women in order to be able to produce more slaves. And it kind of works along the practical lines there. One thing maybe to think about in this aspect is the ways in which race and class are confounded as well, because 
race is a really broad church. In some ways, people who we would now think about as being white are actually racialized as non-white in particular circumstances. So Irish people, I think, is probably the most famous example of people who go from being considered being non-white when they are immigrants to the United States and over the course of essentially about 50 years becoming whiter because of the ways in which society is changing at the time. The description of blackness and the definition of blackness is to be able to divide and conquer between working class white people, to be able to say, you know what, you are special. We're still going to treat you like dirt. We're still going to extract as much work out of you as possible. But we're going to talk about you as if you are human. We're not going to talk about these black people as if they are human. Earlier, you mentioned that eugenics took over from scientific racism at the turn of the 19th century. Eugenics is a much disproved scientific theory that you can create perfect human beings and eliminate social ills like poverty through essentially breeding people. It's what underpinned Nazi ideology, but it had been very popular in Europe all across the 20th century. Only after the horror of the Holocaust did all the countries who'd been hot on eugenics suddenly get memory loss about their former enthusiasm for it. It's interesting that eugenics emerges to replace scientific racism as slavery is superficially abolished in the British Empire. Is there a link there? So let's look at the time period. The transatlantic slave trade is ended in 1807. Slavery in and of itself in the British Empire is abolished in 1830s. And in the US, slavery is abolished in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1865. So we're talking all the way across the 19th century. In 1859, which is a point that exists in the middle of those two things, a very important thing happens in the history of science, which is that a man called Charles Darwin publishes a book called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And Darwin's idea is like one of the three greatest ideas of Western science. You've got Newtonian physics, you've got the theory of evolution, then you get Einstein operating in the 20th century. Okay, what's Darwin's theory for those who only know it vaguely? Sometimes when these huge theories become an accepted part of science, we never get taught the details. It tells us that new species arise out of existing species through heredity and through inherited changes or mutations. I'm applying 20th century science language back into the 19th century. But what Darwin was saying was, ostensibly, there is no God who created individual species all around the world. Actually, they are all evolved out of each other and they all evolve from a common ancestor. Now, we know that it was controversial at the time because of this killing God. And so it's often portrayed as this triumph of scientific rationalism over superstitious religious thinking. It's important to point out that Darwin's theory was controversial for another reason, and that was due to a very political motivation that he had himself. Charles Darwin was born into an anti-slavery family. He was brought up in a political atmosphere that was very fervent and very anti-slavery. So what he was wanting to do was to be able to demonstrate scientifically the commonality of humans. It's controversial because he's going against the grain of established scientific thinking at his context of the 19th century, where, because of scientific racism, scientists believe that humans, that different races are different species of humans that arise independently in different parts of the world. So Darwin's theory is what's known as monogenism. Mono from the Greek meaning single, genesis the different group. He's like, we're all one group, we are all one human race. He was going against people who were polygenists, poly meaning many, 
And so they were the ones who were like, okay, well, African people evolve in Africa or they come out of Africa. Asian people are from Asia. American people are from the Americas. They are separate. They are different species. And what happens throughout the course of the 19th century, but the tipping point is, is Darwin's theory of evolution, is that the, the vast majority of the scientific community accept Darwin's idea. Right, so race science based upon an idea of different races is made redundant because Darwin has come up with a far more credible alternative. But racism and classism still exist, so enter eugenics. Charles Darwin had a cousin whose name was Francis Galton. When Darwin published his book in 1859, Galton just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And his own particular bit of genius that he added to this story was, you know, if humans had been breeding cattle and dogs and pigeons, as Darwin had described in his book, why not do it with humans? And so his idea is that if you can control evolution, why not control human evolution? But Galton, brought up, despite being cousins and despite being quite friendly with Charles Darwin, had been brought up in a completely different environment. His family were quite pro-slavery. His family were originally a Quaker family. They made their money in ironmongery, which always sounds very, you know, it doesn't sound like anything at all. You think about horseshoes until you start to think about muzzles and shackles and chains. So the Galton family made their money directly from the slave trade. And then in the early 1800s, they'd seen which way the wind was blowing as far as the abolition of the slave trade was concerned. So they swapped the money and put it into banking. So they started indirectly profit out of the profits of slavery as opposed to directly profiting out of it. There were gun manufacturers as well. So they're not your typical Quakers. Quakers were not pleased with the Galtons. And so Galton is a racist, he's a colonialist, and so he kind of he takes Darwin's idea, the bit that he likes, which is this selective breeding eugenics idea, but he imposes it still on this view of the world, this context of the world in which some races are superior to other races, is the way that he sees it. And it's important to point out that eugenics, as he conceived it, and as other eugenicists in the 20th century conceived it, is the science of white supremacy. They're not interested in improving other races, they're interested in improving the white race in order to be able to ensure its imperial superiority. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down.
How do we see eugenics continuing to target those with direct histories of enslavement? Eugenics is considerably more ingrained in British society. So the grammar school system, like every two or three years, we have a conversation in this country about whether or not to bring back the grammar school. The tripartite grammar school system was implemented in this country on the advice of a man called Cyril Burt, who was a professor of psychology at University College London. And he is famous mostly for having fabricated a lot of his scientific research. But what he was convinced of was the heritability of intelligence. He came up with the 11 plus exam. So kids at the age of 11 take this exam and based on what their result is, they get sorted out into these different schools. And some of them end up going to Eton and becoming prime minister. That's a rather broad brushstroke, but that's kind of the gist of it. Other people, we forget about them because of that biologically essentialist idea. They're clearly never capable of kind of going into that. Now, one of the outputs of this way of organizing the school system based on IQ as well and IQ testing were schools for the educationally subnormal. And in the 1960s, I think it's the early 1960s, there was a, a researcher called Bernard Cord who wrote a book called How the African Child is Made Educationally Subnormal. Now, we know that then, unsurprisingly, disproportionately, children racialized as black ended up in these schools for the educationally subnormal because they were failing the IQ tests that were racially biased in favor of white kids to do with language, to do with the education system. And this absolutely shocked me when I learned about it. So there were Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi kids in the same schools as these kids who had come from the Caribbean or their, their parents had come from the Caribbean. Those South Asian children, because they were deemed to be speaking a different language, were given extra support to learn English. And there was an acknowledgement that even though they were racially inferior, that because of this language difference, they needed greater support in the school system in order to be able to thrive. For those children of people who had come from the Caribbean, it was assumed that they spoke English even though the English that they spoke was a completely different language with different vocabulary. And the tests that they were being administered, IQ tests, were essentially in a different language. It would be as if I were trying, if someone gave me a test in French, you know, I can, I can order a glass of wine in a restaurant, but I'm not going to be able to pass a test. And, and those sloppy, you know, nationalist stereotype ways of thinking were ingrained in education policy. Why is it that Asian people have thrived in this country in a way that people of African descent haven't, particularly those that came from the Caribbean, it's because they were treated in completely different ways based on these pseudoscientific principles to do with intelligence. It's fascinating because while eugenics never really went away, the COVID-19 pandemic was a very sharp reminder of this theory, which is directly linked to histories of enslavement. We saw at the beginning of the pandemic that black and brown people in the UK and in the United States were dying disproportionately based on the, how they are represented in, in the population. And one of the first questions that came out in the media was, are they genetically predisposed somehow to COVID-19? And the answer is, yeah, sure, maybe they are. But actually, can we also think about how they are the people driving the buses, the trains, they are the people working in the emergency rooms and at the front line of the medical services. They are the ones who are working in the supermarket, stacking shelves to make sure our society still gets fed. They are at the front line without support, without money, without protection. That is why they are dying in larger numbers. You know, I don't need to struggle to make that example very clear. And the same, by the way, eugenics obviously was uh, was highly ableist as well in the way that it functioned. And we've seen that disabled people have died in disproportionate amounts and also hideous things like, you know, do not resuscitate 
orders being put on people with learning disabilities and, and other really, really horrendous things. So, you know, when we think about eugenics, we need to think beyond Nazi Germany. It happens here and now. It's difficult to unpick ideas about race. I have to keep stopping to take mental breathers to let the concepts sink in. Interrogating concepts you've always been taught as unshakable facts takes effort. It's also a gift to look beyond binaries, whether in race and gender, and to understand that these were created to curtail, to categorise, to enslave. In the next episode, we'll be exploring how efforts to heal the world put enslaved people under the microscope. Resources was written by me, Moya Lothi McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Flute by Sean Herbert. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz. This is a Broccoli production, part of the Sony Podcast Network.